Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet podcast. A warm welcome to everyone who has tuned in to listen to my musings, whether it's your first visit or you are a regular. I appreciate you popping in and spending some time with me. I also want to say a very special thank you to everyone who reaches out to me with comments on the podcasts, the generous virtual coffees I've received, and even the snail mail from far-flung countries that occasionally lands on my doormat. In this age of fast-paced digital overload, I am very touched that people take the time to provide feedback or just let me know what resonated with them. If you are new to this podcast, I am Meg and I'm a European English woman who grew up and spent more than half of my life outside the UK, but ultimately settled in London. I'm a maker, writer and generally curious soul. I am drawn to natural materials and I'm fascinated by the long human instinct to manipulate materials, make objects and tell stories. Every other month or so I drop by to share some experiences, inspiration, adventures and observations from my making life. I talk about what I've been working on but I'm more fascinated by the how and the why of the making process from material and environmental considerations of what and how we make to some of the psychological and social reasons and implications of why we make. The best way to keep up with me between episodes is to follow me on Instagram at Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet and that is with an underscore between each word. Show notes of everything I mention in this podcast are available on my blog Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet and I'm increasingly making small videos to accompany the podcast which you can find on YouTube under Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet as well. How is everybody keeping? As we're into April and this is the first episode of the year, you might be wondering whether I've been busy or not. Well, in some ways yes, in other ways definitely not. Like many, I struggle with winter, not just because of the lack of light and the cold weather, but also because it's tied up with messy feelings of loss, as I associate it with the season in which my parents died. Knowing how heavily the late winter months bear down on me, I decided to be proactive this year to make the melancholy a bit more manageable. I therefore made getting out into the fresh air for daily walks or occasional adventures the priority. I'm not talking about epic hikes or great escapades, just a brisk stroll round the local neighbourhood or a pocket-sized visit to one of London's many museums, galleries or parks. After the complete dearth of events during the height of the pandemic, I've been completely spoilt for choice, with more exhibitions on Lenore Tawney and Noguchi's work and several fascinating photographic ones too. And once the days warmed up enough again, the garden once again became the place where my melancholy could be stilled. Our strange tiny patio garden is my happy place, even on cold days, but in the past month there has been a real mix of feelings about the solace and contentment I find there. It is mostly a place for cultivating food and wildlife, and in times of environmental concern, as well as increasing pressure on food production due to the war in Ukraine, it feels even more important to nurture this garden. A tiny garden which, along with thousands of others, make up a patchwork of diverse, life-supporting land. But there are also pangs of guilt. How appropriate is it to savour the joy this space brings when millions of people are displaced by war, as in, for example, Ukraine, or suffering crippling famine, as in Afghanistan, amongst others? 
I suppose part of the answer lies in the universality of the act of growing and of making in general. These are acts of agency and in the case of gardening of hope and a belief in a future that so often finds expression even in times and circumstances of adversity. We often talk about making and growing as acts that connect us with our ancestors but more than that these human acts connect us with our contemporaries around the world and are a testament of our shared humanity whatever divisions political or community leaders try to stoke. So what do I have in store for you today? Well in recent months making wise the main focus has been on two big projects finishing my first ever winter coat and replacing the raised beds ahead of the growing season. As those have consumed most of my energy, the remainder of my making has mostly been short practical projects that I think of and appreciate as satisfying in between making. So I hope you have a favourite drink and some kind of project to hand and let's begin. As my winter coat was looking very shabby and the frayed edges had been patched several times, last year I decided I really needed to stop procrastinating and tackle my first coat. So back in September I set the wheels in motion. Yes, that was over six months ago. As I would hate for that time frame to put anybody off trying to make a coat themselves, let me explain. The slow nature of this project was due to the following reasons. Dressmaking being limited to weekend daylight hours only, some conscious choices about techniques, a lot of dithering about the lining, a daft mistake and some unanticipated issues. So let's get into it. As this was my first outerwear garment, I opted for the simplicity pattern 1197, which is a reissued 1960s dress and coat pattern. The coat is a mid-length coat with raglan sleeves and a simple collar. I chose this pattern as raglan sleeves are easier to sew and fit than other styles. For the non-sewers and knitters amongst my listeners, you can easily recognise raglan designs as there is a diagonal seam that runs from the armpit to the neck. This means that the shoulder is actually formed by the sleeve pieces rather than the bodice pieces. This makes it much easier to fit the sleeves as there are no convex and concave curves to fit together, but also it's much easier to tweak the sleeve pieces for a comfortable fit. I decided to make several modifications to the pattern based on reviews I'd read and some personal preferences. The first was to shorten the design by 10 centimetres or approximately 4 inches as reviews said the pattern came up quite long. I also lengthened the sleeves as the 1960s design had sleeves that ended just above the wrist. The final change was to the pockets. The design involved welted pockets in the front panels of the coat. I swapped these out for inseam pockets, both for ease of sewing but also with an eye on fabric efficiency. Not so much at the making stage but at the end of life stage. You see, I was already eyeing up what fabric I might salvage from my existing winter coat and realised that the welted pockets dissect the substantial front panels of fabric. Speaking of material, after I'd made a first twirl of an old sheet, I decided to use some overstock wool for the wearable twirl. I found some quality wool from Fabworks, which was a particular bargain at £12.80 the metre, as I happened to purchase it during one of their sales. It 
was a brush twill, not dissimilar in feel to a Melton. For the lining, I used a mix of fabrics, but more on that later. So as I mentioned, this was a very slow project. Some of the reasons were practical. First, I limit all my machine sewing to natural daylight hours because the flashing light impression of the needle going up and down under the sewing machine light is much more pronounced in synthetic light and my senses find it quite exhausting. This meant I was only machine sewing at weekends where I had to fit it in around other tasks. Secondly, as the fabric was quite heavy, in hindsight too heavy for this project, I had to pin and cut out the pattern pieces in a single layer, so that meant pinning and cutting pretty much each piece twice. In fact, the fabric was so dense that it offered a good opportunity to cull my more blunt pins. The weight of the wool also meant that pressing the seams was a doubly slow process. Even with a clapper, which is a tailoring tool made of hardwood that allows you to force the steam from the iron into the fabric, it took a lot of pressing to get anything resembling a decent press into the seams. I also made some proactive choices about materials and techniques that were always going to slow down the process. For example, the pattern instructions assume iron-on interfacing, but I'm not a fan of this, partly because it is a synthetic product, but also because I've never been convinced about its efficacy. It rarely remains bonded with the fabric and often loses a lot of its body in the process of being ironed on. I therefore decided to interface the facings and the collar pieces with a linen fabric and use pad stitching to attach it. Technically, I should have used a linen canvas, but the wool fabric was so robust already that I knew it would just add too much bulk. So instead, I used something called beetled Holland linen, which is lighter than canvas, but has some stiffness due to the beating process. Pad stitching is a technique used in tailoring, and it's a kind of tacking or basting stitch that stays in permanently. It involves picking up only the tiniest of thread on the wool side, so the stitching is invisible there. But on the linen side, it produces columns of slanted diagonal stitches, alternating in direction in each column, resulting in stylized Vs. In tailoring, the technique can actually also help shape collars and lapels so they roll over nicely and keep their shape. This was not necessary for this project, but as I'm hoping to tackle some tailoring in the future, I thought I might as well use this coat as a low-risk practice run. By the end of November, I had the outer shell of a coat and I'd finished pad stitching the facing and collar pieces. At this stage, I needed to make a change to the shoulders as they were too wide for me. Thanks to the two-part sleeve and the raglan design, this was a very easy change to make. I just needed to pinch some of the excess fabric out of the vertical seam that runs from the neck over the shoulder and down the outer arm. Next up was the lining, which is where major dithering set in. As part of the wool sale, Fabworks had included lining fabric as a bonus. However, the fabric in question was polyester. As long-term listeners of the podcast will know, I actively avoid synthetic fabrics wherever possible for environmental reasons. That said, I also believe that it makes more environmental sense to use what we already have rather than source new additional materials. Of course, this view is sometimes easier to maintain in theory than practice, and this was definitely such a case, mostly because I'd forgotten just how unpleasant the plastic feel and smell of polyester are. 
I know it's a complete luxury to be able to take this view of polyester, as many people have precious little leeway in their budgets, and therefore no choice but to rely on fast fashion with its ubiquitous use of this fabric. But the downward pressure on wages and the use of cheap fossil fuel derived materials are part and parcel of the same economic dynamics and systems. And, as you can probably imagine, I have equally strong views about labour conditions as I do about the environmental impact of certain materials. Apart from this, I also hate how fashion retailers just fob off people, including those who will never be interested in sewing their own garments, with this poor quality material. I mean, there is this obnoxious contradiction with polyester. As it's basically a plastic, it will take many generations for polyesters to biodegrade, harming many animals in the process. But as a fabric, it actually has little longevity. It perishes at the seams, loses its body and develops a shabby sheen with each wash. So weekends passed and I dithered. In the end, I gave myself a good talking to and just got on with cutting out the lining that had been provided. Based on all the coats I've had in my lifetime, I know that synthetic linings wear out long before the coat does. And when that happens, I could replace it with something nicer, if of course the wearable toile worked out. So I cut the lining fabric, stitched it together and pressed the seams. At that point, the quality of this fabric showed its true colours. Even on a cool iron setting, when I was pressing the sleeve, there was an odd smell. I looked down and saw something that resembled a green brandy snap on the base of the iron and a large hole in the inside sleeve. And as it was exactly at the point where the sleeve and body seams met, there was little scope to patch it efficiently and comfortably. I was pretty miffed at this stage, not so much at the demise of the lining or even the revolting smell, but at the time and energy lost. So I hunted around for a quick alternative non-polyester solution. As someone who religiously squirrels away offcuts from previous sewing projects, I managed to find scraps of some brem silk I had used to line a skirt maybe seven or eight years ago. Brem silk belongs to the visco group of fabrics like rayon and viscose, so a hybrid that involves a synthetic process but uses a natural raw material. It's not a perfect fabric by any means, but in limited circumstances it has its uses. And thanks to the two-part sleeve pattern, I could piece the sleeve lining out of these offcuts. So the scrap box took care of the sleeves. For the body lining, I worked out how much fabric I would need and ordered a couple of metres or just over two yards of some affordable cotton lawn. It was hardly the perfect print, but at this stage I just knew I had to get on with it to stand any chance of having a winter coat this side of the spring equinox. So with all pattern pieces cut, I stitched the lining together and then set about pinning the lining to the facings. At this point, I realised I'd made a gaff, or rather a double gaff. Before I cut the body lining, I checked the side seam length of the pattern piece against the side seam of the body to remind myself how much I'd shortened the coat by. To my surprise, these were exactly the same. So I was puzzled. I concluded that I must have toyed with the idea of shortening the coat, but in the end decided not to do so. However, when I pinned the lining pieces to the front facings, they were out by about 10 centimetres. 
After some confused head scratching and frantic internet searches, I realised that yes, I had indeed shortened the code, but also that the arm sigh of a lining is generally drafted to sit higher in the armpit than that of the outer fabric to allow a better range of motion. And it was this drafting that accounted for the same length on the side seams. So the moral of that chapter of the story was to A, trust my instincts, but more importantly, always annotate my pattern files immediately to track modifications. Fortunately, to correct this, all I needed to do was chop 10 centimetres off my lining, so there was no harm done. And by Christmas, I had an inner coat and an outer coat that could be stitched together. The end was in sight, but from here on in, a whole other level of procrastination kicked in. Normally my confidence grows with each completed step in a sewing project, but with this coat, different emotions were at play. I hadn't been prepared for how I would feel more and more daunted with every step. It was almost as if the more I progressed the coat, the more energy and material were embedded in them, and the more wary I was of screwing up the next step. The other thing I hadn't anticipated was just how physically exhausting sewing a winter coat can be for me. The garment became heavier with each step and it required physical effort to manoeuvre the coat through the sewing machine. And when I was working the curve around the inner and outer collars, I was convinced that the sheer weight of the garment would pull it out of the sewing machine. At this stage, due to the physical effort of wrangling the garment, I was only able to sew two seams per session instead of four. The seams at the collar and the top of the button facing were also where my fabric choice really came back to bite me. Feeding multiple layers of the thick wool twill through the machine was not just difficult, but proved impossible. After breaking two needles, I actually just ended up hand stitching the seam. And when I turned the whole thing to fit the seams inside the garment, I had to do an awful lot of wrangling and poking the corners with a bone folder to say nothing of steam pressing to try to get everything to lie flat. I certainly understand now why duffel coats and heavy overcoats have a line of top stitching about one and a half centimetres or five eighths of an inch along the front edges. But at least I now had a fully constructed coat. The buttons were the final furlong. I briefly mulled over what would be the optimal buttons for this coat. A discrete brown or a jolly orange or ochre to pick up on the colours in the lining. In the end, as luck would have it, I found four large buttons in my button tin. Not perfect, but at this stage certainly good enough. The final step of this garment was always going to be a slow one. This time it wasn't down to my contrary nature. Rather, my sewing machine throws a tantrum every time I try to use the buttonhole function, and it stood no chance with the double layer of this thick wool. I'd learnt to sew buttonholes back in school, but I definitely needed a refresher before trusting myself on this big project. Fortunately, I found an excellent video on YouTube by the Yorkshire Tailor, which talked through the various steps of a buttonhole. In the end, I made a judgement call to forego the gimp, a tightly twisted cord that reinforces the buttonhole edge on quality suits and coats. The last thing I needed at this stage was another reason to procrastinate further on what was always intended to be a wearable twelve. It may have taken me about six months, but in mid-February I finally had a wearable twelve of not just a winter coat, but a coat pattern that I will use many times. 
And as it happened, just in time, as our boiler died at the same time as the UK was hit by a couple of bitingly cold storms. At the end of such a lengthy process, with gratification postponed for months, am I pleased with the code? Well, yes and no. It can feel quite disappointing not to experience resounding delight with a finished garment, but I don't. I have a strong sense of satisfaction, as this is the biggest sewing project I've undertaken, and it involved a lot of new-to-me techniques. The coat is far from perfect, but of a much better standard than a lot of ready-to-wear coats, and that is always gratifying in itself. But the reasons for my disappointment are mostly linked to what I learnt from the process. So what is that? First, if it takes an extended period to sew a garment, there's a chance that our body may change in that time, and in my case, it did. I had picked a size that would allow me to wear a thick woolly knit under the coat. When I checked the outer shell in November before starting work on the lining, the coat had a generous amount of ease, but it wasn't too large, or I didn't think it was. However, by the time I sewed the lining into the garment at the start of the year, I was feeling a little lost in the coat. Before starting the buttonholes, I assessed what changes would be needed to make the garment really work, which brings me to the next takeaway. Make sure to choose the correct weight of fabric for the design. My material was far too heavy. This not only made the construction a lot harder, it also made it very difficult to pinch out excess fabric and get a true feeling of the effect, as the thick seams disrupted both the look and feel of the modifications. In the end, I concluded there was no one place where there was too much fabric that could easily be removed. It was just too big everywhere. Next time, I would need to go down at least one size. As I had always approached this coat as a wearable toile, I decided not to modify the size and use it as an overcoat over the jacket I planned to make. A more general takeaway from this particular conclusion is that next time I make a wearable toile of an outer garment, be it the next iteration of this coat or a jacket, I should probably make a mid-season version rather than a winter coat. It will probably be a lot easier to iron out fitting problems and a lot cheaper when working with a mid-weight fabric. The other practical lesson is that I should tackle winter coats or jackets in the summer months. Yes, it might mean that I wouldn't be able to enjoy a finished garment for a few months, but natural light levels are much more conducive to complex sewing. Also, I now know I mustn't underestimate how physically demanding sewing a substantial wool garment can be, and therefore starting early gives me more time to pace the process. In terms of one of the new-to-me skills, I know that pad stitching is not as daunting as it seems. As soon as you work with a wool with a bit of body, it's easy to lose the minuscule stitches in the pile of the wool. The real art lies in sewing evenly sized and spaced pad stitches and it takes practice to develop that consistency and rhythm. And finally, speaking of rhythm, another useful takeaway is to start at the bottom and work your way up when sewing buttonholes rather than working top down. Although buttonholes once again are not difficult per se, it takes me a while at least to get my eye and hand in with buttonholes. Each one improves as the muscles remember the technique and I get into a rhythm. And believe me, a degree of irregularity is much less noticeable at the waist than it is, say, at the neck or over the chest. 
Well, that was quite a long ramble, wasn't it? Time for a cup of tea before moving on to the next project, I think. The other big job that has kept me entertained in recent months has been building new raised beds for the garden. Our tiny urban vegetable garden is basically a collection of raised beds and pots on a multi-level patio. It has definitely evolved over the years, but convenience and ease definitely drove my choice of raised beds in the early years, as at that time my energy levels were very low due to the undiagnosed fibromyalgia. Over the years though, as I've become better at recognising the symptoms and managing the chronic fatigue and pain, I knew I wanted to make changes to make the garden more effective and manageable. And after last year's exercise in redecking the lower reaches of the garden, it actually felt feasible to tackle building new beds, and we decided to bite the bullet before this growing season started in earnest. There were three key reasons for wanting to replace the existing assembly kit raised beds. Yes, these plastic beds still have quite a few years in them, and I'll be rehoming them via our local community gardening group, but they come in fixed sizes, one by one metre square, or just over a square yard, and one by half metre square. This means that we are using them where they happen to fit in our garden, rather than where necessarily makes most sense from a light perspective. Light is key for growing, especially for food crops, so made-to-measure raised beds would allow us to configure the beds to maximise not just the space, but importantly, the light available. The second and third reasons are actually linked. I noticed in recent years that we were getting quite a lot of powdery mildew as the season progressed. Pests and disease are not a moral failing. They are a fact of gardening life, but there are steps that we can take to minimise both including this airborne fungus. The key is not to plant too densely and to improve air circulation around plants with timely pruning and thinning out. As an urban vegetable grower working in a tiny space, I cram plants in so that successor crops are ready to take over as soon as others have been harvested. This means there will always be a degree of density, but by configuring the beds differently, I could improve air circulation. Also, better accessibility to the beds makes it easier to regularly cut back and thin out. A metre square is generally considered a good size for ease of access on the basis that you can actually bend over to reach it. But accessibility is relative and definitely depends on circumstances. Over recent years, I'd noticed that I was regularly tripping or hurting myself as I was trying to contort myself into a tight space over our existing beds while clutching secateurs, trowels and seedlings. My energy levels and physical strength are definitely better now than they were several years ago, but part of being better is knowing how to manage these and recognising that seemingly minor issues can have a disproportionate impact on the body. With this in mind, it seemed sensible to build new beds in a more accessible configuration, not just for the immediate term, but also to future-proof the space. When I tentatively suggested this big project to Mr M, I was surprised at how keen he was. There would obviously be a monetary cost, but also a lot of time, effort and grunt work, like the tedious back-breaking job of moving soil. 
But he was up for it because he admitted he had always hated the look of the green plastic raised beds, and even my efforts to grow nasturtiums along the edges never really succeeded in disguising their ugliness. So, come March, as the days were growing longer, we started work. As with decking, I enjoyed the process of designing the beds and calculating materials for minimum wastage. There were also some dilemmas, like whether to treat the beds to lengthen their life or line them with plastic. Reluctantly, I decided on the latter, as I didn't want to use any paint or stains with unknown chemical compounds on beds primarily intended for edible plants. The first step was to replace the half-metre rectangular square bed that stands against the waist-height sunny wall that retains what I affectionately call the upper grounds of the garden, and to replace it with two slightly smaller rectangular beds positioned at a right angle to the wall. This would not only allow me to have two beds in the sunniest spot of the garden, but it would also provide me with easier access to work the upper grounds without having to reach across a raised bed. The next step involved sacrificing the two square metre beds and replacing them with rectangular ones of a metre by 60 centimetres, so about three and a half by two feet, and placing these at right angles with the other half metre square beds that we were replacing like for like. This leaner L-shaped configuration of the beds once again improves both access and air circulation. Giving up some precious raised bed square footage may sound like madness in a tiny vegetable garden, but I decided to devote some of the space we gained to a couple of currant bushes in pots. This crop choice is part of a wider reassessment and configuration of the garden, influenced by a mix of external and personal factors. We have used organic box schemes with mixed success in the past, but back in early 2020, we decided to give it another go as Mr M was spending more time working from home, even before the pandemic hit. Local food production with minimal fossil fuel based fertilisers has always made sound environmental sense to me. But supporting local organic farmers became even more important in light of the anticipated post-Brexit slashing of agricultural food and environmental regulations. After two years of cooking with our chosen organic box, I decided there was no longer any point in growing crops that the box provides in abundance. Things like beetroots, runner beans and courgettes. Instead, I decided to refocus our garden efforts on crops that the box does not offer or doesn't offer in the kind of volumes that we eat. For example, short stubby cucumbers, tomatoes and a year-round mix of cut-and-come leafy greens. My growing efforts would have two other focuses. On the one hand, there would be the currants and berries, which are expensive in the shops. On the other, I wanted to include half-forgotten plants that straddle the line between herbs and weeds, that are happy in partial shade or pest-tolerant, and that are, where possible, perennial. My aim is partly to diversify the leafy greens we eat, but also to garden with our conditions, make life easier once plants are established, and reduce the amount of hands-on time in the garden. This may sound strange, as I love pottering in the garden. However, as my energy levels improve and stabilise, there are other things I also want to be doing, both out of the house and even in the garden. 
I would like to be able to spend some of my energy on sunny days working on other projects in the garden, like writing, pottery, dyeing, printing, even editing these podcasts. And I would like the garden to be a nurturing space just to be in. So the desire Mr M expressed for a more visually pleasing backdrop for our urban vegetable patch is definitely not a frivolous one. But back to the project. As expected, constructing the box frames, stapling wire to the bottom, lining them and placing them on space timbers for drainage was the easy part of the operation. Backbreaking at times, but relatively easy. The real kicker, as expected, was digging the soil out of the old beds, finding somewhere to store it temporarily while replacing each raised bed in turn, and then refilling them. The process involved a musical chair of pots, beds and any containers we could find. As I was making the new beds a little deeper than the previous ones, the exercise got a little easier with each one we made, and I also got into a rhythm. The first layer to go into a new bed was the soil from one of the potato pots. This allowed me to both rotate last season's potato soil and free up a pot to take some of the earth from the next bed to be dug out. Next I added a layer of shredded paper. No matter how hard we try to reduce waste at source, paper, especially packing paper, inevitably finds a way into the house. Anything I don't reuse for packaging myself usually goes into the compost, so why not add it straight into the soil where it can decompose in situ? Finally, I added a good layer of compost that I dug out from the original bed, as well as some from the next one along. Moving soil is never going to be the most riveting job in the world, but it does involve moments of delight. If worms are a measure of good soil health, our beds were teeming with them, and I feel like I'm now on first-name terms with most of them. And I must have sounded like a complete eccentric to my neighbours as I found myself apologising to the worms for disturbing their peace and promising them a lovely new home. Then there were the encounters with the birds. Every time I took a break, the local robins and dunnocks would pop by in search of grubs in the freshly dug soil. And at the end of the day, after I swept up stray soil to clear space for the next session, young blackbirds would swoop down to play in the piles of organic matter, causing complete mayhem as they practiced pecking and pulling. We've now replaced and refilled each raised bed, and there is enough space in them to add a layer of homemade compost to help replenish the nutrients. But that's a job for next week. Having focused so much on big projects in recent months, I used what little energy and mental bandwidth remained to little makes and often rather mundane makes for practical reasons. One of these was a quick cosy hat. I have a terrible record of losing hats. For nearly two years I didn't lose a single one because I barely went anywhere and when I did I walked and I wore the hat all the time. But when tentative journeys to exhibitions around London started to creep in, hats started to go astray. I think it might have something to do with sitting on busy buses and trains or in museum coffee shops where the bustle and noise bamboozle me. But inevitably hats, and umbrellas for that matter, seem to disappear on those kind of outings. So, as I was in need of a quick woolly hat to keep my head covered on these little expeditions and after swimming, I turned to a tried and tested pattern, the Trellis Beret by Woolly Wormhead. 
This is one of the designer's older patterns, but remains one of my favourites with its simple repeat lace spiralling to neat points at the crown. Woolly Wormhead has a mathematical background and this definitely shows in her designs as hats lend themselves so well to playing with circular geometry. I appreciate many of her designs, especially her circled collection from 2017, and I would like to wear a wider variety of them. However, after years of experimenting, I've concluded that beanies don't suit me and berries just work better for me and none better than the trellis berry. As this pattern is knit in an arum weight yarn, it's not only a small but also a very quick knit. And with everything else that was going on with big projects and the wider world, I opted for a comfortable wool, both to knit and wear. In particular, Jameson of Shetland's Heather. And for good measure, I went with the comforting and luscious copper beach colour to complement my green eyes and hint at my faded freckles that still put in an appearance after a bracing walk or a good swim. Another of my in-between makes consisted of sewing a few pairs of undies here and there, once again relying on tried and tested patterns and supplies. In this case, the Josie and Agnes pants patterns by Made My Wardrobe, the pattern company I used for the bra I made last year. And as the company also stocks quality organic cotton jersey and fold-over elastic, I simply sourced my supplies from it too. I'm aware that these last two projects probably make me sound a bit dull and unadventurous, but I think most of us are made up of a multitude of contradictions. On the one hand, I'm curious and excited to grow heritage, half-forgotten or unusual edible crops in the garden. On the other hand, I'm very content to stick with tried and tested patterns and materials. Maybe that's a function of experience and age, or maybe it's just realising that my time and energy are precious, so it makes sense for me to stick with trusted sources, so I have more energy left for the other directions where my curiosity wants to take me. In my case, that includes the other areas of my creative practice, including my clay work. And one of my in-between makes was a spot of tool making for the pottery studio. There are various materials and methods with which to apply colour to clay. Previously, I typically used glaze, but I'm increasingly experimenting with slips. Glaze, as the name suggests, is a kind of liquid glass, which once heated to the appropriate temperature, vitrifies and makes a vessel watertight. Another type of colour is slip, which is liquid clay, which can produce a variety of colours but is not of itself waterproof. Since changing my clay body, I'm enjoying exploring some of the effects that are possible with slip on the outside of pots, so I decided to make use of some of the windfall from recent storms to add some brushes to my studio that will allow me to produce more texture and movement when decorating with slip. Just as in my fibre pursuits, in pottery I am also drawn to a limited colour palette and favour emphasis on texture. So, having found some hard twigs from horse chestnut trees and more supple ones from a weeping willow after Storm Eunice, I decided to try my hand at making some slip brushes. For technique and inspiration, I used a beautifully filmed video by Sage Cortez, the Oregon-based potter behind Hand and Fire. Sage's demo focuses on pine needle grass and a branch brush, but I was working with the materials I could find locally. 
using a whipping knot for the handle and a simple over and under weaving technique, I turned the horse chestnut twigs into a two-ended firm etching brush, more intended to scratch out the slip than apply it. As the willow branches were more subtle, I used the same techniques, but I fanned out the willow bristles more. The resulting lighter touch should produce a different feel to the marks I scratch into slip. This little project involving a spot of foraging one day and an hour or so of shaping brushes whilst waiting for beans to cork combines so many things that I find deeply satisfying. For me, making tools, just as growing some ingredients or foraging for raw materials, takes my enjoyment and satisfaction in the making process to a completely different level. But it also feels delightfully subversive in our hop onto Amazon Prime approach to meeting practical needs and wants. Secondly, making tools out of nature's waste is not only wonderfully thrifty and low impact, it also means that at the end of their life, these brushes can go onto the compost heap to return to the soil. I also enjoy and actively embrace how one craft interest meshes and melds with another, and that seems to happen very regularly when going back to basic ancient materials. In this case, the minor leap from a basic grasp of string and weaving into practical simple tool making. Well, that's more than enough for one episode. Please do let me know what your making life currently looks like. Have you been tackling any big projects recently? with full focus, or maybe like me with a degree of procrastination? Or does your making practice currently include gentle lulls of in-between making? Either way, please let me know. And until next time, I hope you enjoy many hours of making, whatever your medium may be.